1: George Wien, jazz promoter, musician, producer, died in September at the age of 95. The music impresario with local roots is best known for founding the annual summer Newport Jazz Festival. It's amazing, you, you will never believe and understand where they came from Australia, from Germany, from Italy, from every country in Europe, because The Voice of America had broadcast the Newport Jazz Festival and they knew what was happening. It was unique in the world. Born and raised in Massachusetts, Wien played piano and jazz as a child. Early on in his producer career, he opened the Storyville Jazz Club in Boston and in 1954 founded the Newport Jazz Festival, creating a blueprint for all subsequent music festivals around the world. Wien used the festival as a platform to boost careers and industry respect for musicians, such as Miles Davis and Duke Ellington, as well as a tool for social justice, promoting a diverse lineup of artists and a appealing to racially mixed audiences, a radio tribute to pioneer, innovator, and advocate George Wien. Later in the show, the MacArthur Foundation released the names of its class of 2021 Genius Fellows this October. They join an exclusive group of previous fellows who have demonstrated outstanding talent in their fields. I try and drill down on solutions that will give people the opportunity to live healthier, more productive lives. Harvard professor and physician economist Dr. Marcella Alshon is one of three local awardees, part of our series, The Genius, Next Door. But first, joining me remotely, Eric Jackson, jazz radio personality and host of Eric in the Evening on GBH Radio. Hi, Eric.
3: How are you doing, Callie?
1: Glad to have you. Jay Sweet, current executive producer of the Newport Folk Festival and Newport Jazz Festival. Welcome, Jay.
2: Happy to be here, Callie
1: and Sue O'Claire, president of Sue O'Claire Promotions, a Boston-based PR and marketing firm servicing the arts, entertainment, and media industries. Thanks for joining us, Sue.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: I'm going to start off with a question that I want each of you to answer. Eric, who was George Ween to you? Just tell us a little bit about him from your perspective.
3: Well, I mean, you know... First thing, immediately, you think Newport Jazz Festival and the things you just said, he brought people from all over the world. You know, they came to hear the music. You know, a couple of years ago, I posted on Facebook that I was going on vacation. And among the things I said I was going to do was, one, was to go to uh, the Newport Jazz Festival and, and several other smaller jazz festivals and somebody wrote back and said that's not a vacation and i said to me it is i see lots of friends i see good music i hear the musicians i you know i said so to me it's it's a party it's a way to hang out you know you you gathered there with other uh, music lovers whether you knew them or not you often had a conversation with someone next to you it was just a unique event a way to spend, well, became three days, but uh, uh, to spend some time listening to the music. And to you, George was? George was just just the one that, the glue that brought that all together. I mean, starting in the 50s, when he got together with the Laurel Arts, he was the one that was able to put all that, that together and to keep it going too. So he was the glue behind all of that. I, I really never really had long conversations with him, but that, that's the way I saw him was as the glue. Hmm. So, Eau Claire, who was George Wayne to you?
0: Well, he was all of those things that Eric said, but he also was my client for 21 years. And I worked on five different festivals with him, the Jazz Festival in Newport and the Folk Festival, the Boston Globe Jazz Festival. And there were a couple of years in Newport where we had the Rhythm and Blues Festival. And one year we had the Gibson Guitar Festival. We had a blast with all of those. And we just used, used to come to Boston every summer and put on a dinner party and run around. We'd run around in his car and go to all the interviews and do TV and radio and You know, it was just, it's all a blur now. I can't even remember everyone that I met through him, but it was fantastic. And, you know, he and his wife, Joyce, who was African-American, really broke ground with not only their marriage, but bringing African-Americans to a little town called Newport. And, you know, in the first year, some of the musicians were not allowed to stay in the hotels.
1: That alone is huge. Mm. Jay Sweet, same question. Who is George Ween to you?
2: A piano player, a maverick, an activist, a philanthropist, the true walking definition of an impresario, a Red Sox fan, and uh, my mentor. Mm. What's your
1: favorite memory of him, Jay?
2: He had this kind of thing, if you got him laughing, his laugh would become silent. His eyes would squint And he would have this big silent laugh. He would bypass laughing to this, this silent laugh. And the funny thing about that is when I would get him to that is when I screwed up (laughs) because he would sit there and then immediately go into a story of how he had made the same mistake 20 years before with miles or Nina Simone or, and he would just, he would just hold his stomach and laugh until, it, there was no noise coming out of his mouth. And and those are my kind of favorite memories because I knew I was going to A, get scolded and then B, get a really good story after. And we should say that you were in the position to be scolded because he was your mentor. That's right, yes. It's funny when, it's not funny, it's, it's intimidating when I always say he didn't write the book on music festivals. He uh, innovated the printing press of which all books about music festivals were written. And so when that person is your not only your mentor, but your day-to-day boss, you can think you know a lot, and it doesn't fill up the thimble that would fit over his pinky finger.
1: Mm. For you, Eric, what's a favorite memory? Now, you said you didn't interact with him that much, but you were hosting the Newport Jazz Festival for many years.
3: Yeah, I did, and a lot of that was thanks to Sue, incidentally. Well, I, I think that seeing George riding around in the cart or walking in the festival and interacting with the people. I mean, it wasn't like George was aloof or anything. He was there to enjoy the festival. I do remember once, you know, there are several stages and I do remember they wouldn't let him into one of the stages. Oh, I, why? I, oh my I, God. I can't remember what they call that, the small room where they hold the usually piano performances. It Well, it was full and The fire marshal wouldn't let him in. So he came to the back door and I let him in the back door.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He wasn't mad? Was he mad? No, he didn't seem
3: like he was mad. He didn't (laughs) seem like he was mad. He got in, you know. (laughs) Wow.
1: (laughs) That's amazing. All right, Sue O'Clair, favorite memory.
0: Well, I was trying to think of one and I just thought of this circumstance where uh, one year Michael Feinstein had been booked at the Newport Casino for opening night of the jazz festival. And Danny Melnick had told his managers, okay, you can't play him at the South Shore Music Circus or the Cape Cod melody tent because that's competition for us. And then the uh, booking agency went ahead and did that. And so just before the festival, press conference, in, which was in May, Danny said, I I, I can't take it. I got to replace them. Who should we get? And we're brainstorming over the phone. And I said, I think you should get Eartha Kitt. And he was like, wow, that's a great idea. And George and Joyce were like, no, no, she only plays the Carlisle. She can't sell enough tickets. But Danny and I and John Phillips, who was the president of Festival Productions at the time, we prevailed and they went along with it. And amazingly it sold out (laughs) and George came to me and he said you know you taught me something I don't have to pay a hundred thousand dollars to sell out the casino (laughs) Uh Mm -hmm.
1: wow that is great
0: (laughs) yeah it was and Eartha came to the press conference and she was magnificent and she did all kinds of interviews for me and the news went out and people were lined up at the box office to buy those tickets
1: I am very interested in his revitalizing other people's careers. That was a great story you told there, Sue, about his, what I have hear from people, take a risk, you know, do something different, you know, mix it up. And you were able to persuade him to do that in the moment. But I was particularly fascinated about his Looking out into the music world and 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 seeing people who were excellent in their fields, but maybe due to their own personalities, like Miles Davis, they weren't doing so well at the moment. And he would bring them to the festival and really revitalize their careers. Eric,
3: well, with Miles, actually, it wasn't so much that he revitalized Miles's career; is he actually kickstarted Miles's career? Miles had been around for a number of years he had had problems with drugs he got a chance to play newport and when he played newport that's when columbia records heard him he had been on prestige records which was a much smaller label and when columbia signed him his career sort of took off from that point the columbia records to the to jazz fans a lot of jazz fans who love that but uh The material that he did for Columbia just caused his career to skyrocket.
1: Mm. Well, here's a clip of George talking about the mightiness of Miles Davis. Jazz is like a deck of cards. There are aces, kings, queens, jacks, then you got other numbers. But if you're going to put on a great festival, you need...
0: The aces and Miles was an
1: ace. Now, the one thing about the festival, Jay, that he did, or maybe this is a, also a question for you, Sue, was he really mixed up the acts. So when you think about a jazz festival, maybe you think about many acts of people like Miles, jazz musicians, but he did a mix and that was deliberate, right, Jay?
2: Of course. Yeah. I mean, you don't, you don't put together a picnic and only just serve, you know, one dish. Depends on the dish. Well, Jay. it's true. If it's, if it's, <laughs> by the way, if it's his cook, if it's his cook burls, collard greens, I'll tell you, man, I, I would eat that and nothing else. But no, you know, I, I think that was obviously he, he called it his responsibility. Uh, he he really looked at it as it was responsible. He always said, you got to book pockets of vibe. You know, there is no there is no rhyme or reason, just pockets of vibe. And, and meaning it's not OK, we'll do one legend, three newbies. You know, piano thing over here, he didn't look at it that way. It was building pockets of vibe. And and the the funny thing is we taught each other a lot about counter programming. So when we moved to having three different stages, it was building various pockets of vibe at simultaneously. So you could have three stages going simultaneously. And people who weren't hip to, you know, one thing could go listen to to it at another stage. And because of those monstrous, I'm talking in the, in the later years, of course, those monstrous 35 foot high granite walls, one of the unique elements of its home out on Fort Adams is you can have three stages playing simultaneously with almost no bleed. And so counter programming became a thing where he and I really had our own kind of creative uh, conversations with each other. Yeah, I want this over there and I want this over there. And I'd say, that's fine. Cause then I'm going to go put this over there. I'm going to go put this over there and everybody <laughs> wins. Wow. That's the only way you could get a compromise with George is is you weren't really compromising. You just took the slots he didn't want. That that was the compromise. (laughs) Okay. What can't
1: be emphasized enough
2: about him, and honestly,
1: I didn't know this before prepping for this conversation. I knew he was big. I knew something of his legacy. But I didn't understand that in his beginnings way back in the 1950s, that he would become so expert that, for example, the production team that he put together was lent out to work on Woodstock.
2: Yeah, Joe Boyd and and those guys were all, I mean, George had been doing it since 54, right? So he'd been doing it for 15 years before Woodstock was even a, ideated. He, so when I say the cabinetry, and I literally mean the cabinetry around the speakers to waterproof them and weatherproof them, all the way down to things creating, putting some bigger bigger kind of uh, base, big booming things underneath the stage to order to give the stage something from a ground level. All those things were all experimented with at Newport for 15 years for these big things like the Montereys and the thing. And that was all the Newport team. It was the same team. And so, I mean, just, just where you would put a soundboard, meaning out in the middle, as opposed to just a stage board. I mean, I could get technical, but yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because it is something that got lost to time. And I believe it was Joe Boyd who wrote this in fantastic book, tried to say, you know, everybody thinks of Woodstock as the first big outdoor event. Well, it wasn't supposed to be 500,000 people. It wasn't supposed to be that many people. It was supposed to be, you know, X amount. And all the tricks and everything learned was was directly, directly from Newport. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with
1: Callie Crossley. And with me remotely are Eric Jackson of Eric in the Evening on GBH Radio, Jay Sweet of the Newport Folk Festival and Newport Jazz Festival, and Sue Eau Claire of Sue Eau Claire Promotions. We're discussing George Wein's influence on the music world, including the national and international prevalence of festivals. It's our radio tribute to him. I wonder how much his being a musician played into his love of music and then expanded then to his wanting to create the space for the festival, Sue. What what is your sense of that?
0: Oh, that's a huge part of it. He understood music. He played music. He loved the music. And he, you know, started with the jazz club that you mentioned earlier, Storyville. By the way, the first Newport Jazz Festival was very eclectic. The modern jazz quartet, the Dizzy Gillespie quintet, Jerry Mulligan, Ella Fitzgerald, Billy Holiday, just a few names, George Shearing, all different styles of jazz.
2: Wow. Well, don't forget, don't forget, Sue. He also then, not too long after that, started people having like Chuck Berry right. and Led Zeppelin and Frank Zappa. Yeah. <laughs> so he was actually the person who who decided at one point, let's throw some, you know, musical hand grenades into the conversation and see how uproar it gets when i put chuck berry or and i know uh you know eric would probably have something to say of of those conversations of when he would put a frank zappa and the mothers of invention or a led zeppelin on a jazz festival Um, but he did that with a little kind of wink and a nudge knowing it would bring up these jazz fans and get them pretty all fired up that george was you know sacrilege (laughs) george loved that george george loved that Eric, weigh in on that. What did the jazz fans say when,
1: when that happened?
3: Well, you know, there are jazz purists.
1: <laughs> oh, yes, there
3: are. They screamed <laughs> that uh, this is not a jazz festival. Or, you know, this doesn't belong at a, a jazz festival. It's, you know, these people are not jazz. And they, they've continued to say that about other festivals throughout the years. But one of the things I've said about festivals now and the multi-stage Fence that they've become is that, you know what, if you want to book, I mean, you can't book Chuck Berry now, but if you want <laughs> to book someone like a Chuck Berry over here, but over here, you'd have had someone like Kamasi Washington, over here, you have some other established jazz star, Ron Carter or something. I don't have a problem. I know how to not go to see Chuck Berry if I don't wanna see Chuck Berry. I can walk over and see Kamasi Washington or Ron Carter. So to me, with the multi-stage events, that, that was not a problem. And I think, and Jay would know more about this than I would, I, I think that some of those bookings like that might help to pay to keep the lights on in the festival. There would be people that may have come out because you had someone who wasn't a jazz artist, and they'd say, "Oh, I got to see so and so." As long as they knew how to behave, and not <laughs> like the year when they misbehaved, I didn't have a problem with that at all. But I, and I think that there are other people that do. But there were definitely some people who didn't like the balance when you started mixing things up.
1: Would you also say that, actually, because there's always been this struggle to keep jazz, you know, out there for people to appreciate, you know, it it seems to be a struggle. And don't you think that he actually went a long way to preserve the interest and the popularity of jazz, actually, Eric?
3: Yes, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying by he could bring in somebody who was not a jazz artist, and especially if it's a multi-stage event. You could go he- hear the other person or you can go hear the jazz artists, and so that would get people into the uh, festival that wouldn't come and they might be surprised, they might come in and you know wander over from hearing uh, the uh, non jazz artists and say wow. This, this was really great. I didn't think I'd like this stuff, but wow, that was really great. So I think that went a long ways to uh, help expand the not only the festival, but the audience for jazz, too.
2: Well, that was his line, Eric, was it's not about us trying to find the jazz fans of the world. It's about us trying to manifest fans into jazz fans.
3: That's yeah, the whole yeah. point. We called yeah, those yeah. artists
2: gateway artists. George would right. say, we need a gateway artist. It's like a gateway drug. We get them in on this. You know, we say, "Hey, come see." You know, even a trombone shorty, right? You come see a trombone shorty. You walk in, you see Charles Lloyd, which we would put right before trombone shorty. And someone who gets the stage early to see trombone shorty, they don't know who this Charles Lloyd guy is, who they should, of course. And then they see Charles Lloyd, and they're they're just mind blown, and they're like, "I now get why trombone shorty is basically doing what this cat's been doing for x amount of years." And we did that, and we and vice versa. Someone comes to see. Charles Lloyd has never heard of trombone shorty. And before they pick up their, you know, blanket or whatever and move on, they catch a couple of notes of trombone shorty. And next thing you know, they're trombone shorty fans. So that was always in George's strategy sessions of those kind of gateway musicians.
0: I would say that George was, you know, very eclectic musically. You know, what you might not know is that he also was a huge opera fan. But aside from his eclecticism in music, he also was equally good as a businessman. And he knew how to program so that he would sell tickets (laughs) so that he could pay for the more avant-garde stuff here and there. And for the real jazz artists, you know, you mix it in and it's a financial program as much as a musical program.
1: Well, one of the things I wanted to mention is what the economic boost of the jazz festival did to Newport. I mean, that was a nice little town and, you know, had some rich people there. But my goodness, looking at the report by the Fourth Economy Consulting Group, the festival was not just, you know, his dream of doing this, but $58.1 million
2: is the estimated economic impact. Yeah, that was from twenty eighteen. It's actually now crossed sixty million dollars economic impact per year. There you go. It's second only to the beaches of Newport wow. as the biggest economic driver. That's all the beaches combined in Rhode Island. So it is the single, you know, biggest cultural event. Now that America's Cup doesn't happen there, and you know, celebrating the one percent of the one percent in the mansions on Bellevue Avenue aren't, aren't as That's not something they love to throw up on their tourism brochures as much. That this is really internationally, as I know Sue worked very hard to make it so, and Eric, you know, that it's not nationally known. It's internationally known. You say Newport, Rhode Island. Yeah. You don't think of three things anymore. You really think pretty much, oh, those are where those festivals happen.
3: Right. (laughs) Right. And
2: that is something that even the... The now Secretary of Commerce, Gina Raimondo, uh, Madam Secretary, who was the governor, has brought up a number of occasions of saying, this is one of the largest cultural events for a state, any state in the union, that is more synonymous with something, right? So Boston Marathon, Boston, right? Rhode Island, these festivals. And so there's very little um, to separate the words Newport folk and Newport jazz from the, the state of Rhode Island. And that's something we're quite proud of, obviously.
1: Yes, no. I also want to make sure that we get in how revolutionary he was in trying to break down some racial barriers. You know, now people go to the festivals. Nobody, I would presume, thinks anything about looking out into the crowd. And there's, you know, folks of all races and ethnicities sitting there enjoying or working it or being on stage. But that was a big deal. And so he had some
2: intentional moves that he made. Jay, would you talk about that school bus The best story that George did with it, again, that sly little mischievous grin, he put the shape note singers, these uh, that was mostly at that point, gentlemen, there were some women in the shape note singing from Appalachia. He said, "Okay, you're staying at this hotel. And he went and had a bus to pick them up. Well, it just so happened he also had that bus pick up the Sea Island singers, the Georgia Sea Island singers, which were predominantly black women. And they were both coming to the festival. But he sent one bus out to pick up both parties to bring them to the festival. He, I believe it was Charlie Bourgeois, kind of a right-hand man of his, and he put Charlie on the bus and he said, you know, just tell us, to, you know, just in case something drastically wrong happens. And, you know, this was, in the, this was in the early time of the very first couple of folk festivals. And so like 59 to 62 in that era. And, you know, we all know historically that was not the greatest for civil rights at the moment. And sure enough, After a very tense couple of minutes, all the white gentlemen from the Shape Note Singers stood up and gave their seats over to the black women of the Georgia Sea Island Singers. And so by the time that they actually showed up at the festival, as the story goes, they were trying to figure out songs to do together and to sing together. And I think that story perfectly illustrates what Sue had brought up, George and his wife, Joyce. Again, when they got married in 1959, it was illegal in 22 states. For them to be married, a small white Jewish man from Boston and a black woman in 1959 wasn't super normal. Uh, But I will say that one of the greatest stories is when George flew to New Orleans, as we all know. Well, I hope your listeners know that George also started the famous New Orleans Jazz Festival after both the Newport Jazz Festival. It would have actually happened before he'd even done the Newport Folk Festival. But he I love this story because it could have been done in a telegram. George flew all the way down and this was back when prop planes not jets flew all the way down to New Orleans at their request to see about throwing the New Orleans Jazz Festival what would become. And he sat and he let them do the pitch and he let them do their their whole thing of why this would be great for the city and he he let them talk and talk and talk. And then he said, "Okay, George, we're going to after dinner we're going to put you up in this hotel and then we can talk about your decision in the morning." He said well, I'd love to, but I got a plane to catch because it isn't until my wife and I can stay in the same hotel in this city. I'm not coming to do a festival for you. And he got back on a plane and flew all the way back to New York. He just wanted to say that to their face. He could have honestly sent a telegram and said, I'm not interested in doing a festival in your town until my wife and I can stay in the same hotel. But I, I like the fact that he did the In his, the first time he told the story, it was 14 hours of flying, but by the end, it was 24 hours of flying that he had done (laughs) at 96. I'll give him that creative liberty. But those are just two fantastic stories of what, to your point, Callie, what his marriage and at the very base of his DNA and everything he did that was always on his mind. Mm.
0: Yeah. And Joyce, Joyce did a lot of the cooking for the bands in the early days. And she was the one who went to Salve Regina and various other places in Newport to find housing for the musicians who were turned away from the hotels in the early days.
3: Hmm. You wanted to add something, Eric? I was going to say, wasn't George also a collector of African-American art?
2: Yes, yes big time. Premier. And in fact, it was, as Sue would say, this was also Joyce's influence. Joyce was the one, let's just be honest, who had the eye. And she would say, George, go buy that. That wasn't that was Joyce saying, George. We have to own this. George, we should buy you know this book, The Invisible Man. We should buy a lot of first editions of these. We should go uh, support this musician. We should go buy this art, and that was something that George did gladly and quite honestly, as George would attest, he never made money on Newport folk and Newport jazz. He made a lot of his money in art and in wine and in other things well outside the the music world. Well, his collection of African-American art is quite stellar.
1: There is a book about one of the exhibitions alone. And, I mean, he has everybody, all the masters and then some of the emerging people at the time.
0: Yeah, I worked on the exhibit at Boston University. I forget what year that was, but that was one of the things I did. It was amazing.
1: So I have a last question for all of you. What do you want people to remember about him? I'll start with you, Sue.
0: Well, I guess just that he was such a pioneer in doing what he did and such a supporter of, you know, America's wonderful musics, not just jazz, but also folk music and all kinds of rhythm and blues and blues. I mean, it's, it's an amazing palette. You know, I mean, he was a painter that had his own thing going on musically.
3: Eric? Well, I think, you know, you had to love the music. In order to persevere for the number of years that George persevered, I I just can't imagine that you could could do the work, uh, especially when Jay said he didn't make money uh, really off the festival. So it wasn't money then that was driving him to do it. It, it was some something else, and I like to believe that something else was his love of the music, at least part of it, was the love of the music. And that's what I think people should remember, that he was doing a labor of love.
1: Let me just follow up with you on one quick question, and that is, do you think that all of who he was and his interests and his musicianship was shaped by Boston roots, and that's part of the legacy as
3: well? Oh, sure. At the time when he started Storyville, Boston had an extremely active jazz community That's an active jazz community. Now it had an extremely active jazz community. There were a number of clubs so that I'm sure it was shaped. I, I once asked that question in an interview of someone and said, well, when you talk about so-and-so who came out of Boston playing, don't forget that they were here in Boston and they learned from the Boston community. They learned from the Boston musicians and the Boston music scene.
2: And Jay, what do you want people to remember about him? His fearlessness, everything we've talked about, we have to remember no one had done it before him. Honestly, when you think about festivals, there there are one to two degrees of separation from every festival you know off the off off the tip of your tongue. That all trend back to to this man. And he put his, reputation, his state, his, his net worth, all on the line on several occasions. Almost every decade, he would do it. And I think it has a lot to do with what Eric said about his love of music. But lastly, honestly, and, and Sue kind of touched on it, it was his fierce loyalty to these artists. He had, Joyce and, and George had no children. I think his biggest children were the Newport Folk Festival and the Newport Jazz Festival, but he considered every artist that came That's Yes, he was a piano player and he was an artist and not a great one, he would say. I think he was pretty darn good. But he didn't have children. Everybody who played the stages, those were his children. And he was fiercely, fiercely loyal to them. And I think that is why his legacy lasted for almost seven decades.
1: Hmm. Well, I thank you all for joining me today to remember George Ween and participate in this radio tribute to him.
3: Thank you very much. Thank you.
1: Eric Jackson is the host of Eric in the Evening on GBH Radio. Jay Sweet is the executive producer of the Newport Folk Festival and the Newport Jazz Festival, and Sue O'Clair is the president of the PR and marketing firm Sue O'Clair Promotions. When I uh, play pianos like this, such a bad piano, I'm not going to play it. Uh, it reminds me of some of the days before I was a producer and couldn't put the pianos together myself. Uh, It's one of the things we're proudest of, is that uh, we created a quality to presentation in our festivals. And uh, I think that's affected jazz festivals, jazz clubs all over the world. Coming up, she researches the effects of racial discrimination and the resulting mistrust of the medical field for historically marginalized populations. Harvard professor Dr. Marcella Alshon is a physician economist and a member of the 2021 MacArthur Genius Fellows, one of three who are local. We talk with Dr. Alshan for our series, The Genius, Next Door. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.